Good morning, everyone. I want to thank uh, Susan Thompson for sponsoring the class in memory of her father, Avram Thompson, Avram Zalman Ben Yoshua, his Neshama Shavan Aliyah. Thank you so much, Susan. Really appreciate it. Okay, Pesach is upon us. Anyone start cleaning yet? Oh, wow. Okay, good stuff. Okay, fantastic. So we're not going to talk about cleaning today. Uh, but we are going to talk about the Haggadah. Uh, my personal pet peeve, for my own personal experience, if you, uh, there are Haggadahs and a handouts all on the Bima, if you want to grab one. Um, and so my personal pet peeve is so often I come to the Seder and it's a busy season. We're running around, we're cleaning and we're cooking and we're uh, getting everything ready. And we come to the Seder nights if we're even like half awake. And I recognize some people in this room might be more tired than others. And that's understandable. But we're not, you know, and we've read the Haggadah so many times, but we're not really fully acquainted with the Haggadah. We're not fully familiar with the Haggadah. Um, and we lose out on the experience because of that. You know, the more we're familiar with the text, the more we're able to just read it and we're experiencing it as opposed to kind of reading it the first time. Even though we read it the year before, the less fresh it is, the more we're familiar and comfortable with it, the more we're able to get out of it. You know, I always tell couples uh, before, they're mar- before their wedding, when a couple that I'm marrying off, I always tell them to either visit the hall, the wedding hall, or to at least envision in their mind what the wedding is going to look like step by step. I walk them through it. Like I ask them to visualize, like, so you can experience it because, you know, if you, it, during the wedding itself, it's so busy, it's so frenetic, you know, and then you, you finish like, what? We, we just got married, right? So, but the more they're familiar, the more they're comfortable, the more they're able to actually be in the moment. And of course, Seder night, we want to be in the moment. We want to experience the, the Seder and the Haggadah as best as possible. There are handouts and Haggadahs on the, on the Bima. Okay, so there are, I'm trying to remember, two classes, three classes, I don't remember at this point, but there, this is part of a series. I think there are two of these. Um, but what I'd like to do, really to start with, and maybe this will speak to some of you more than others, but a challenge that I've always had with the Haggadah is the fact that we call this night Seder night, right? It's the Seder. And Seder means... Order, right? Order, structure, things which are organized. And yet, the Haggadah, for anyone who has studied the Haggadah or reflects on the, the text of the Haggadah, it seems like the most disorganized, papery, like, available. It, it just, it's, it's random. It seems incredibly random. We know there's, you know, we know there's Kadesh and Orchatz, and we know there's that structure, but specifically the section of Magid, specifically the section where we tell the story, it seems like the editor got lazy. And the editor basically took a, a Mishnah over here, a story over here, a song over here, and basically put it all together, taped it all up, and here you have the section of Magid. And that doesn't make any sense. On a night of order, a night of Seder, a night of structure, to say that the Haggadah was just simply thrown together, a bunch of random pieces that all revolve around the basic theme, it doesn't seem right. And so what I'd like to begin our class today, and I don't know how far we're going to get beyond this because it's going to take us a couple of minutes, is share with you two possible perspectives about the structure of the Haggadah. Okay, so we're going to be doing a lot of flipping of pages, so you'll have to bear with me. Um, And we're going to share two ideas. To me, once I understood these ideas or or saw these, it changed the way I come into the Seder. It gives it so much more context. It allows you to realize that, you know, to, to appreciate what you're doing at each step. Because as we'll see, there really is a Seder. There's an order. It's sometimes hard to see. It's sometimes we won't necessarily know it on our own. But once we are familiar with it, I think, to me, I'll speak personally, it radically transformed the way I experience the section of Magid. Okay? So I want to share with you these two approaches. The first approach, we're going to actually focus on the second one first. Uh, There are two tables in front of you. The first approach is from the Malbim. The Malbim lived about 150 or so years ago, 200 years ago by now or so. Um, And he um, begins his introduction to his Haggadah by asking this question. He says, what's going on over here? Uh, It's supposed to be so organized. Um, He actually asks a very interesting second question. Why do we call this book the Haggadah? Why is it called the Haggadah? Where does the word Haggadah come from? To tell over. Lahagid, right? And the section Magid. But the truth is there's another mitzvah. Probably when we think of the mitzvah of the night, what is the most famous mitzvah of the night? What would we call it? Sipor Yitzias Mitzrayim. It's like the story of Mitzrayim. And the truth is there are different verses which describe the retelling of the story in a different way. Some speak of Sipor Yitzias Mitzrayim. But there's one verse that speaks of Haggadah, Magid. And that is Vigata Levincha Bayom Hahu. Okay, there is a commandment in the Torah that says that you must instruct your child on that day. Okay, Lamar Bavorzeh, because of this, Asa Hashem, Li Hashem did this for me, Bitsesi when I left Egypt. Okay, so there are a number of verses which refer, which allude to Pesach nights. That verse, interestingly, is the only, all the verses, by the way, have one commonality. 
in addition to talking about Mitzrayim, they all talk about children. They all talk about the next generation. They talk about saying the story and making sure that it gets passed on to the next generation. What's unique about this verse that I just mentioned, Vigat Levincha, it's the only Pasuk which doesn't begin with the child instigating, initiating. Most of the Psukim have the child asking a question, or if we have time, we'll see maybe sometimes telling a question, right? You know, the difference between asking a question and telling a question, sometimes in a class, I get that, right? Sometimes ask, puts a question mark at the end of a statement. That's still a statement, even if you put a question mark at the end, right? Um, that's actually, by the way, uh, there is one place in, um, in, in the, the, you know, the, um, I'm going to jump ahead because this is important. Um, you know, the four sons, the section of four sons, we're going to go a little, little quick tangent over here. Um, the notion that the, the, to understand why there are four sons is because the Torah has four different sections where there's a dialogue between a parent and a child. Now, you have to look at the psukim, the verse themselves, to appreciate why each child is considered a chacham, a wise one, why this child is seen as someone who can't ask, why this one is seen as simple. Why is the child who's a rasha considered a rasha? Where in the verse, the verse in the Torah, the one verse in the Torah that speaks about this child, uh, why is he considered a rasha? So the commentators point out, some commentators point out, because in that verse it says that that child says to his father. He doesn't ask, he says a question. When you're saying a question, you're not really curious to hear the answer. You're making a statement, even though you're pretending you're hiding behind a question. Okay? So anyway, well, we'll come back to that hopefully at a later point. Uh, but the basic idea is that there is this verse in the Torah, which says, It is the only verse which demonstrates that there's an obligation, even if the child doesn't ask, or even if we don't have a child, we have an obligation to tell the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim of the Exodus. And that pasuk suggests the Malbim is actually the meaning, the understanding behind the entirety of the Haggadah, okay? That verse, we're going to break up that verse as we'll see in a moment, that you should relate to your child on that day, saying, because of this, Hashem acted for me when I left Egypt, that Pasuk is actually the construct, that is almost headings, it's chapter headings of each section of Magid, and I'll explain to you how. So we're going to begin, I'm going to, we're going to run through this together page by page, and to give you this, this picture of how he understands this. So if you look um, on page, we're going to start in the beginning of Magid, or almost in the beginning of Magid, on page 26, 26. So if you look on page 26, or maybe 27, we'll do this in English, so it'll be a little bit uh, easier to go quickly. Um, so this, this, uh, this section over here, we were slaves to Paro in Egypt, right? If you continue that passage, it doesn't just tell us the story. It actually doesn't tell us the whole story of our slavery, but rather it tells us a very, very brief idea. We were slaves, Hashem took us out, and then it concludes. And then it continues. It says, and if Hashem had not taken us out, right, we would still be slaves in Egypt, right? Um, we would still be slaves in Egypt. So there is a personal implication. There's a personal, uh, you know, the fact that we here are in 2023 are living in Baltimore as free is because of that event. So we're reminding ourselves, why am I obligated to focus on Sipor Yitzhiyas Mishraim? Why am I obligated to tell over the story? Because it impacts me. Had this story not happened, had God not taken us out, it would have, it would have impacted me. Okay, and then it continues. It continues and tells us why and what we're doing that's unique about this night. And it tells us that even if we were wise, even if we know the stories, anyone ever here know the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim? We certainly do, right? But we still have an obligation. The obligation is not only about us, but it's an obligation. It's an obligation to pass on the story to the next generation. It's an obligation to ensure that the story is passed on from our generation to the generation under us. That is the prime focus of the night of, 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 of Pesach. Because we truly have an obligation to remind ourselves of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim every single day. We have a mitzvah to remember the Exodus every single day. What is unique about Seder night, at least according to this approach, is vigata levincha. It's the fact that even I may know all the knowledge, but tonight on Seder night, it's not about me and what I know. It's about ensuring that there is continuity. It's about ensuring that I'm able to take whatever experiences I receive from and stories and, 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 and memories and, and emotion that I've received from the generations before me to pass them on to the next generation. And that is all laid out in the first few pages over here because it says that it explains that it's relevant to us. It's a story that's relevant to us. And even though we may be knowledgeable, we still have to pass it on. Right? And then we have a story about individuals who they themselves were extremely knowledgeable. It's the famous story of Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Eliezer ben Azari, Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Tarfon, that they're gathered. They, of course, were the sages of Israel. They knew everything, and nonetheless, they are telling over the story. Why? 
because it's important that the story gets passed on even if we know the details ourselves. So point number one, Vigatz Levincha, you relate to your children. The idea being that even if we know the story, it's relevant to us and we have to ensure that it gets passed on to that next generation. That all is related to the first words of that verse, you should relate to your children. I'm going to go on a quick sidebar once again. Why are those sages in Bnei Brak? Why are those sages in Bnei Brak? Bnei Brak was not Bnei Brak of today. It wasn't like all the, the Rosh Yeshivas were living in Bnei Brak. Bnei Brak was actually a, 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 a not a very populated city at all. And what's even more interesting is the list of rabbis, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, Rabbi Tarfon, Rabbi Kiva, who was the youngest or the, the, who, who was the teacher and who was the student in that story, in that, that, those names, I'll tell you a little history. Rabbi Akiva, as we know, became a sage quite late in his life. He only started learning when he was 40 years old, right? These people, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Shur, Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, Rabbi Tarfon, were his rabbeim. They were his teachers. Rabbi Akiva is the only one who lives in Bnei Brak. So very interestingly, the rabbis, the teachers, are going to the students' home on Pesach, which is fascinating. Doesn't usually happen that way, right? When I was uh, studying in Israel, I went one night to uh, my, my, my teacher's house, right? The teacher usually hosts, you know, the, you go to the teacher. The teacher doesn't come to you. So why are they going to Rabbi Akiva? So there are a number of explanations. One explanation very much fits with what we're saying, and that is on Pesach night specifically, the goal is not about the prestige, and, uh, you know, it's about passing it on to the next generation. So it would make sense that they go to Rabbi Akiva because that's the focus. The focus for us is to ensure not that we know that we become more knowledgeable, but ensuring that it gets passed on, and that's why they're going to Rabbi Akiva. That's one possible approach and fits very nicely with what we're saying over here. Alternatively, alternatively, uh, the history of the time is quite important as well. We know that the Jews at that time were living under intense Roman persecution. Many of these rabbis lived in major uh, urban cities, in places, and we know from, from different sections in the Talmud and Mishnah, and those places, uh, presumably there was much greater, a much greater Roman presence. We know of some of the places where the Romans certainly had a strong Roman uh, presence. Bnei Brak was the, the sticks. It was the, you know, it was basically, you know, the backwaters. It was, you know, the backwoods. It was nothing. It was basically a tiny little place. And some suggest that they were actually in Bnei Brak to escape persecution. They were there because had they been celebrating publicly or as a group, in Lud, which was a major city, or in another, other major cities of the time, the Romans would have prevented it. The Romans would have broken it up. And therefore, which, which gives the story so much more emotional, you know, you hear about people who celebrated Pesach, you know, the famous story of the, the, the Seder at the Wars, in the Warsaw Ghetto or things of that nature. And you think about these Jews who are sitting there and are afraid, and many of them ultimately die the hands of the Romans. Many of these Jews are killed by the Romans, but that Seder night, they are, they are celebrating, they're talking about the Exodus, they're talking about their belief in God, despite the fact that they are living under this, uh, this very, very, very dark shadow of the Romans, which again gives it an incredibly moving to me, uh, you know, uh, shade of emotion about, and, and, and to us, you know, who live in such incredible freedom to, to think about if they could talk about freedom with such fervor all night long, then we who really, really, really know what freedom is certainly have an obligation to do so. Okay, so one way or another, you should relate to your child. That's the first part of the verse. The next part of the verse, the next part of the verse is, um, okay, and basically, sorry, and then, and then if you turn to page 28, what happens next? It's the four sons who are asking the question. Because again, the whole goal is pass it on to the children. So the first two pages are all about vigata levincha, tell your child, okay? What's the next words in that verse? Vigata levincha, bayomahu, on that day. Turn the page to page 30. And what is the first paragraph? It tells you what day to tell the story. It begins by, one might think that obligation to discuss the Exodus commences with the first day of the month of Nisan. But the Torah says on that day that you only have this obligation to pass on the story by Yomahu on that day. So it's quite literally matches up. So that paragraph at the top of page 30 or 31 fits together with the words on that day. Okay. Then it says, Lamar. Okay, what is lamar? Lamar means, lamar is one of the funniest words in the Torah. It doesn't translate well in English, right? So many verses begin, Vayidaber Hashem El Moshe Lamar. Hashem said to Moshe, I remember as a child, we would say this, or a Rebbe would say, Hashem said to Moshe, saying, right? What does saying mean? We don't, we don't speak this way in English, right? We say, Hashem said to Moshe. What does saying mean? Ever wonder? The word, that, that verse is the most common verse in the Torah. What does it mean when Hashem said to Moshe, saying? Uh-oh, we've been learning this for a while. The best English might be as follows. Okay, okay, that could be, that could be, yeah. It's sort of like a kinemar, as it is said 
know, okay, okay, so a similar idea, similar idea. Many understand the word lamer almost as a way of saying to amplify. Okay, um, some understand it more about ensuring it wasn't just that he said to Moshe, but lamer means to say to others, to say to others. Alternatively, it means to amplify that, which is similar to amplifying that message. So lamer, lamer means it's not just an right. So it'd be God to live in, you should tell your son, right? We're breaking up this verse on that day. Saying lamer means to amplify that message. So guess what follows on page 30 um, from the second paragraph. Then it starts getting into the story. In the beginning, we were slaves in Egypt, okay? And it starts describing the story. And then if you turn the page to 32, it really gets into the story. This is where we do a full-fledged analysis of all the verses that describe, this is the long part of the Gada. This is where people start dozing off and, and getting lost, right? Uh, this is the part that's hard, right? Basically, it goes through the Pesukim, right? Um, and all the way, and we'll, we'll analyze these Pesukim in just one second, but it goes through all these Pesukim from, you know, from page 32 all the way through, uh, through page uh, 38, really, it analyzes the verses, right? We're amplifying the message, okay? And then we have this funny debate between the sages about how many plagues there were, followed by our favorite song, Dayenu. What's all that about? If you look at what the sages are arguing about, they're describing things that are not found in the text, right? That debate about how many plagues were there. Were there 10 plagues? Were there 50 plagues? Were there 200 plagues, right? What they're arguing, they're, what they're doing is describing the story in more detail, right? The Torah itself is the written text, but we have an oral tradition. So these sages are coming along and telling us other details. And similarly, Dayenu, Dayenu, what does Dayenu do? It doesn't only tell the story of Yitzias Mitzrayim, but it tells the whole story, all the way, the real end of the story, which is we built the base of Megdash, right? We made it to the land of Israel. So it goes into all the details, Lamar. It's amplifying the story. That's the whole goal, okay? Excellent. Okay, you with me? Okay. Um, okay, then, okay, what's next? Because of this, right? Ba'avur Zeh. The next part of the verse is Ba'avur Zeh. Because of this, right? So what is because of this? We now say at the end of the verse, towards the end of the verse, we say that God took us out of Egypt because of these things. What are these things? Um, we focus on the mitzvos of the day. These things. So what are these things? Pesach, Matzah, and Marah. These are because we say that God took us out of Egypt because of the mitzvos that we fulfilled. And actually when we say, if you turn to page 42, this is really one of the most important parts of Magid. This is where Mangamliel would say, you have to say and explain these three things. And we say that Pesach, it's the Karban Pesach that our sages used to eat. And then Matzah, we say matzah zoo, right? We say this matzah, we point the matzah at that point, right? Because we're saying it's because of this matzah. We had faith in God. We baked that matzah and we left right away because of this matzah. And then marar zeh, this marar, right? We point to these items and that parallels that part of the verse which says because of this, because of these mitzvahs that God gave us, that's the merit that we had in leaving Egypt. You still with me how it's following that verse? Okay, and then the next part is uh, the next part of the verse says that Hashem took me out of Egypt. Hashem acted for me. What does it mean Hashem acted for me? And so we, have, we know, if you look in the bottom of page 44 or 45, we have in every generation, it is one's duty to regard himself as though he personally had gone out of Egypt, right? We have to say it's me. That wasn't just my ancestors who left Egypt. We have to imagine ourselves and think about the impact of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, of the exodus of Egypt. And therefore that follows Hashem acted for me. Okay, and then what's the final part of Magid? We sing a little part of Hallel, okay? And the last part of that verse was when I left Egypt. And of course, the, the, second, the, the conclusion of that Hallel is, Bitsais, if you look on page 46 or 47, when Israel went forth from Egypt, Bitsais, Yitzrael, Mimitzrayim, when the Jewish people left Egypt, which follows that verse, which says, when I, Bitsais, Mimitzrayim, when I left Egypt. So if you followed all that, the Malbim is essentially suggesting that the structure of Magid follows a single verse which is broken up into pieces. You should tell your child. We begin explaining the whole purpose of what we're doing tonight. On that day, and we explain that we're doing this specifically on Pesach nights. Lamar, we then go ahead and amplify the story and we go into all the details. Bavorzeh, we focus on the items. Because of this, these items, God acted for me, meaning I imagine myself as if I'm leaving Egypt, and we parallel, we, with that, those words are paralleled with the singing of Hala. Okay? With me? You see a structure? Yeah? Question. Yes. Yeah. Comments, which are sort of questions. Sure. Paralleling Diana and Mount Sur. Okay. And the other is, 
And this is me as a music person. If it's eight years straight, I would finally have something to sing with a really good tune. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, fair. Uh, fair. And so the, the, the connection between Moz, Sur, and Zayenu, yes, they both are certainly uh, epi- um, you know, songs which, which speak to the story and, and, and broaden the story. I think that's a common theme. We don't only, only focus on what's happening today. We always amplify, uh, you know, broaden the story to see it into an historical context. Okay, good. So that's one approach. That's one approach. I want to now share with you, to me, an even more profound approach, which really speaks the essence of what we're doing on Seder night. Okay? One approach we just said was from the Malbim, where he suggests the whole idea is that we are trying to, um, what we're trying to do is uh, make sure that we're passing on the story to the next generation. That's what's unique about Seder night. There are others who argue that what's unique about Seder night is not um, passing it on to the next generation. It's not about telling the story. It's about the emotional reaction to the story. Rav Soloveitchik in many places speaks about this, that, on, that the difference between the daily obligation to remind ourselves of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is there, it's just zechira, it's memory. But on Seder night, it's about reminding ourselves and feeling it. And what is the expression of those feelings? What emotion should we be feeling on Seder night? What emotion? Gratitude. Gratitude. Thank you, right? Gratitude. And so what do we do when we're grateful? We say, thank you. Right? So the whole essence of Seder Nights, as exactly as Irma said, is about reminding ourselves the story, feeling the emotion, gratitude, and expressing that gratitude through praise, through thanks. So the whole, that's the whole goal of Seder Nights. Okay, let's start there. Point number two. Let's say, okay, I'm not going to go around and ask people if they read the whole Haggadah, but sometimes people tell me I'm embarrassed, I skip parts of the Haggadah. Uh, okay, let me tell you something. There's a Gemara that tells us about Abaye, who was one of the great sages, who was once uh, sitting at, at the Seder of his uncle, okay, his adoptive uncle, his uncle adopted him, and his uncle, who was a great sage in his own right, went ahead and removed the table from in front of him. Keep in mind, back in the day, they had, you know, I guess we would call like those uh, TV tables, you know, those little uh, trays. What do they call them? Yeah, yeah, basically a little stand. No, they didn't have like big sprawling tables. Each person had their own table. And so this sage, right before the beginning of the Seder, went ahead and moved the table out of the way. And Abai said, uh, uncle, what are you doing? He says, great. We could skip all the questions. We could skip Manishtana. We could skip everything. I'm just going to start telling you the answer. I'm going to tell you the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Right? That's the Gemara. So what's the Gemara telling us? What the Gemara is telling us is that the structure we have over here, this is a template. It's a template. It's telling us that there is a structure that needs to take place. There is some structure. But don't lose yourself on reading every word, okay? Don't lose yourself. I, I want to be very clear. I want to be for, I read every word of the Seder, and, and I think it's the ideal thing to do. But my point is to recognize what its function is. Its function is to give you a mindset, to give you a template of what your Seder could and should look like, and then for you to learn from it and create your own. And to do something of your own. If the whole goal is just to read all the words, check, I finished reading all the words, we completely missed the boats. The goal is to learn what this template is. And, and just like Abaya's uncle basically said, we're not going to read the Haggadah today because you asked a question. I don't need to ask, why is this night different because of matzah or mara or reclining? You, as long as you ask a question, we're good. As long as you ask a question, we're good because on Seder night you need to ask questions. You ask questions, I'm going to give you an answer. We don't need to re- worry about the text. So I want you to understand the Haggadah, or at least Magid, is about creating a template what is the template? So here, here you know, now we're about to start jumping in. The template is a question. The question, any questions? The answer, the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And as Irma pointed out before, there is the praise. We praise God. That is the basic structure. Now, there are many ways to do so, right? Um, back when I think all of us were in school, you know, um, there was uh, the, the way a class was taught was typically a, st- a teacher w- was exactly like the way I'm teaching. This is old school education. I'm sitting in front of the room and I'm talking. Some of you may be visual learners, right? That's a, you know, and basically for you, this, you, this may be driving you crazy because I'm just blah, blah, blah. And there's no pictures to look at. There's no, I'm not writing anything on a board and I'm not, there's no visuals. And it's hard to learn that way for some people, right? The point is that there are many different ways that we study. Some people like in-depth analysis. Some of you are thinking to yourself, why are we focusing on the structure? This is ridiculous, right? Some, everyone has different things that speak to them right? And the Haggadahs we're about to see is very sensitive to that. The Haggadah, the night that we're thinking about passing on the story to the next generation, the Haggadah, our sages, were so far ahead of the times when it came to educating, when it came to ensuring that things get passed on, they were beyond ahead of their times. And as we'll see, what they created for us was a structure, a, a set of templates of different ways that we could engage the next generation or ourselves. Four different ways, as we're about to see. 
Okay? So now let's go back to the beginning of Magid and let's go all the way back to page 24. There's nothing that gives me more joy as opening a Haggadah and finding a piece of matzah. Okay, uh, <laughs> fine. Uh, you, know, you, know it's a good, you know it's a good Haggadah when there's like wine stains and, and matzah in it. Okay, so if you go all the way back, what is, how, does the, how does Magid begin? And we'll come to that, that paragraph which I'm omitting soon. But if it, it begins on page 24 with a question. Manishtana, why is this night different from all other nights? Question, right? A bunch of questions. And then turn the page to 26, okay? And there is a short summary of the story. On page 26 is a short summary of the story. It says, we were slaves in Egypt and God took us out of Egypt. Now, let me ask you a question. That story itself, is that a, when it describes a redemption, is it describing something, you know, a, a spiritual redemption or is it describing something much more universal, more, more universally moral? We were slaves in Egypt and God took us out of Egypt. Moral. It's describing, right? We're slaves. We, we had a difficult time and God took us out. It doesn't talk about the unique nature of the Jewish people or anything of that nature. It's describing the physical redemption, okay? And then it describes, just concludes that passage by sharing those stories, okay, about the sages who, who, uh, who also said the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And then it turns page 28 or 29, second paragraph, Baruch HaMakom Baruch Blessed is Hashem, blessed is He, right? That is praise. Baruch is praise. We're praising God. So put a little line under that paragraph. That is the end of section one. This new approach I'm sharing with you is from Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Rimon, okay, from his Agadah. And he suggests, Manishtana is the question, Avadim Hayinu is the answer, and then Baruch HaMakom is the praise. In that little section, we focused on the physical, universal redemption. For some people, that's what speaks to them. The, the, whole, the Torah, maybe not, they're not there yet. But the notion that, that the night of Seder is a night about freedom. It's a night about not being enslaved to others, a night of, of, of personal dignity. That's what it's all about. We were, what's the story tonight, Manishtana? We were slaves, God freed us. Thank you, Hashem. Passage number one. That's the end of section number one. And if you're following, it's the top chart over here. It's the top line, part one. Manishtana, Vadamayinu, Baracha Makom, physical redemption. Yes. Uh, I just thought of something that's really congruent. The youngest is saying ma. What's a kid's favorite word almost? <laughs> okay. <laughs> fair enough. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, it's not fair, by the way, for all the fathers in the room. But okay. Uh, but, but okay. But a very interesting observation. Okay. Uh, part two. Part two. The next section. Chacham, the wise one, Mahu Omer. Mahu Omer. What does he say? Again, another question. And here we have four questions as phrased by the wise son, the Russia, the simple one, the one who doesn't know how to ask. But again, it's questions about Pesach night. Okay, it's about what's going on here. Again, it's another set of questions. Turn the page to page 30 or 31. And if you look, Mitzchila, once again, it starts to tell the story of the Exodus. This time, though, it tells us the story from a bit of a different angle. Right? You could say, you could always say the same story. You know, a good uh, author could say the same story from like five different perspectives. You know, this person's perspective, that perspective, this dimension, that dimension. So now the story is no longer about we were slaves and now we're free, but rather what's this telling of the story? Our ancestors were idolaters. We, our moral compass was broken. We didn't have one. Our ancestors, Avram's parents were idolaters. And even we, the Jewish people, his descendants were idolaters. And then God took us out of Egypt. And most importantly, brought us to Sinai, gave us a Torah, and gave us a whole new lease on life, a spiritual dimension. The focus of this telling of the story is not about we were slaves and now we're no longer working. It was more about we were morally bankrupt and now we have a spiritual guide. So the focus over here is more about a spiritual telling of the story. And this passage concludes with, on page 30, Baruch Shomer Haftachas Yisrael, or page 31, the second last paragraph, blessed is he who keeps his pledge. Once again, it's a praise to Irma's point before. We are now, we told the story, and now we need to express those emotions. We express the gratitude. Section number two is about spiritual redemption. Still with me? Okay. This one is a little easier. This whole thing is easier a little to follow. Okay. Now let's turn the page to page 32. Okay. Let's turn the page to page 32. And... Uh, we're going to, yeah, so let's go into this passage a little bit. Say ulamad, right? What did Lavan want to do to Yaakov, our father? Once again, we have a question. There's a question, right? And then we go ahead and we tell the story. Now, I want to pause over here for a second. This passage has always confused me. There's a lot of psukim over here, a lot of verses. What, what exactly is going on? So they do a wonderful job over here by making certain words bold 
and certain words not bold. Okay, so let's just read this together. We can, in both the Hebrew and English. So what we're about to do over here is a full-fledged textual analysis. If you look, Arami Oved Avi, right? This is a verse actually from, anyone know where this verse is from? Devarim. Devarim, which section in Devarim? Bikurim, excellent. Okay, we'll come back to that in a moment. But when, the Jew, when there was a mitzvah to take your first fruits to the Beis HaMikdash and to thank God for the, for the first fruits and to, to praise God, uh, you know, for, for, for doing so. Okay, okay? That's, the, that's the, the section. We'll come back to that in a moment. But what, what follows basically is we have that verse, Arami Ovid Avi, or Aramean attempted to destroy my father. Vayer Mitzrami went down to Egypt. Vayagasham Seimaat, and he lived there with a small amount. Vayisham Legai Gadal Atzum Varav, and he was there as a nation, great and strong and, and, and numerous. Period. That's the end of the verse. Now what follows under is that verse is analyzed. Right? In other words, you see what the bold, and then you see the, the, the words, then he descended to Egypt, right? Those words are now repeated in the next, the next paragraph, and then they're explained, okay? And then the next words in that original Pasuk, Vayagar Shamni sojourned there, right? And then it not only explains it, but it quotes another, let's just see that, he sojourned there. You see those words? Those words are from the original Pasuk. It gets quoted again, and now we back that up. We source it. Look, he sojourned there. This teaches that our father, Yaakov, did not descend to Mitzrayim to settle, but only to sojourn temporarily. As it says, they, the sons of Yaakov, said to Paro, we have come to sojourn in this land, etc., etc., etc. So it proves that it's true. They only came to sojourn, right? And then the next words, with few people, again in bold, it's going back to the original verse. And then it says, as it's written, right, with 70 people, your father is descended to Egypt, that we came down to Egypt with a few people. Right? Are you following how this is working? Basically, you have the original verse, and then each word of the verse is sourced by something more original. Now, let me ask you all a question. If you were writing the Haggadah, and you wanted to tell over the story of the Exodus, which section would you pick? Which section would you choose? The part where the Exodus occurs. In the ah, that seems like a pretty logical Bo, place. Yeah. Start in the beginning of Shemos, maybe. Maybe Bo, Bo Bishal, right? In, this, in the book of... Exodus, right? The book of Shemos, which it tells the story. That would be the most logical place to start, right? But the Torah, but the Haggadah doesn't do that. It takes a Pasuk from Bikurim, right? A group of people who didn't even experience the Exodus, Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and it uses that Pasuk as the source. It's kind of funny. It's kind of odd, right? Are you appreciating this question, right? You understand this question? In other words, if we had to choose which Pasukim to really analyze we would pick the, story, the psukim, which actually tell the story. Instead, we choose the verses, we choose the psukim from people who never experienced Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And instead, we take their verses and we analyze their verses and we back up. We say, oh yeah, they lived, they were there with only a few people. How do you know that? Because of the Pasuk in Shemos. They were there only to sojourn. How do you know that? Because of the Pasuk from the original. Why, why not just read the original? What are we doing over here? What are we doing? Why not just read the original thing? Why are we reading the secondhand information? Fair question? I think. What I does th this even have to do with Bikurim? That's a good question as well, which I'm not going to address right now, but, I, I, but, but it's a very good question. Maybe if we have time, I could come, come back to that. But, uh, but I, I think what's happening, I think what we're doing is as follows. Th these, this, the story of Bikurim is, who, the people who bring those first fruits, again, they didn't experience the, the Exodus. That generation that left Mitzrayim, they died in the desert, right? For the most part. The people who are bringing the first fruit, that's years after, they only start bringing Bikurim 14 years after they enter the land. They have to settle the land, etc. And so it's actually the very first time in our history, in the Torah, that we see a group of people who are telling over the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, even though they didn't experience it. And actually, interestingly, they're saying it in the first, pers first person. They're saying, we went to Mitzrayim, and the Egyptians were bad to us, and then God took us out of Egypt. And so we have a, a model of people who didn't leave Mitzrayim themselves, but are still speaking about it in the first person. And what do we do in this section? We take their story and we connect it to the generation before. In other words, we take a word. They said, oh, we were there as a small nation. How do you know that? Because there's an earlier verse which describes them coming in a small nation. In other words, the reason we choose this, these psukim specifically is dafka, specifically because they were people who did not who did not experience Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the Exodus, and nonetheless were able to appreciate and feel as if they did. And so we take their psukim, their story, and we connect it to the story before them. That's our model for us. 
That's what we're supposed to be doing on Seder night. We're supposed to be saying our story and connected to our parents' story and through them connected to their parents' story. And so we specifically take a generation who did not experience the Exodus because we could see through them how one could experience Mitzrayim, or the, the exodus of, from Egypt, even if they themselves did not experience it. That, that is why I believe we specifically are taking their verses and not the original story. We're looking for a model of people who are able to do what we are supposed to be doing on Seder nights. Okay, be that as it may, what follows is a very in-depth textual analysis, again, and that's why many people fall apart during this time. The textual analysis concludes at page 40 or 41, and what follows on page 40 or 41? Dayenu. What's Dayenu? What are we saying? It's enough, but thank you, Hashem. We're happy. We're praising God, right? So what did we just do? We had a question. What did Lavan want to do? We have an answer, a full-fledged, excuse me, many-page textual analysis of the story of the Exodus, and it's followed by Dayenu. Once again, it's that same structure. Question, answer, praise, Right? In other words, that same idea, right? And then finally, we have a final section, which is on page 42, which is a number, three sets of questions. If you look on page 42 or 43, we say, why did our fathers eat a Passover offering during the period when the base of Migdash still stood? And on page 45, we say, why do we eat this unleavened bread? And the next paragraph, we say, why do we eat this bitter herb? Okay, we ask all those questions. Okay, and then we basically, in each paragraph, we give an answer. Right? In each paragraph, we say, why do we have this Pesach? Because God jumped over our houses. Why do we eat this matzah? Because the Jewish people had to leave Egypt without fully allowing the matzah to bake. Why do we eat the mar? Because they embittered our lives. And so basically, we have a question, we have an answer, and then what happens after this, if you turn the page to 46 or 47, we then have a shortened version of Hallel. We have an obligation to praise you, Hashem. Once again, a question, an answer, and a praise. Now, the last set of questions and answers are actually a visual. I mentioned earlier, some people learn through visuals. What do we do when we get to the matzah? We say, this section, we say, be this matzah, this mar. Why don't we point to the Pesach? Because we don't have a carbon Pesach. But if we would have a carbon Pesach, we'd say, this Pesach. So the last section of the Seder, this section is a question-answer, not text-based, because some of us don't care for text-based learning, but it's much more visualization, much more experiential. Right, so the, the, the structure of the Haggadah, based, right, if you're following the, the chart I have over here, is basically question, answer, praise. The first time around, it's about the physical redemption. The second time around, it's about the spiritual redemption. The third time around, it's a textual study. And the last one, it's the visualization through the objects. It's more experiential. You with me? So it's not random. It is not e misudar. It is not un disorganized. It is misudar. It is a night of Seder. It's a night of order. There actually is a structure to the Haggadah. For me, I'm a very, I'm a maybe, uh, you know, one of those people like my desk being clean. This tablecloth over here has been bothering me the entire class. I like everything being organized. Uh, this, to me, I don't know, I walk into the Seder with this knowledge and it just gives me a sense of what I'm doing right now. What is my focus? My focus, oh, right now I'm talking about the physical redemption. Let's think about the physical redemption. What does that mean to be a slave? What does it mean to not be a slave? The next section, I'm talking about the spiritual redemption. Great. What does it mean to be someone who is, you know, doesn't have the moral compass? And what does it mean to now have those, those values? What does it mean now? How do I, how do I analyze these verses? Now we're doing textual study. Great. Let's study it. Let's study it really well. Now we're doing visuals. Maybe I need to add to the visualization for the people at the Seder. Maybe pointing to matzah is not going to grab their attention. Maybe I need to dance around the table to, to feel like we're leaving Mitzrayim. I don't know. But the point is that if you understand each section, I, I think, to me at least, it gives a lot more uh, substance to each section. Okay? Now, okay. Any questions on the structure? Yes? Well, not to... Uh not to shoot a hole through your yes. <laughs> lovely structure, but uh, I can't remember who told me this, but there is an interesting interpretation that ma, as in manishtana, is not really even a question at all. Hmm. Because if you look at parallels, um, it, might, it might be more like an exclamation point with a big exclamation point at the end. How different? Because you look at parallels in Tanakh, you see Yaakov says, ma hamakom hazeh. How awe-inspiring is this place? He's not asking why is this uh, awe-inspiring. Manora. So we say manishtana halalata. How interesting. Interesting. We say mayudidot Right. And that probably literally means how, how lovely, how charming is the rest? Is the Shabbat rest? It's not right. why is there a Shabbat rest or why is Shabbat rest lovely? It's mayudidot 
how beautiful this is. You could say, Ma Mishtana and it flows nicely because how how unusual this night is. Why? For example, right. That's an example of how unusual it is, and so on. That's an interesting. Observation, a very interesting idea. I would just point out that the ma's that we find, the ma. Okay, so so Jonathan's suggesting that the word ma in manishtana is maybe exclamation as opposed to question. I'm told to repeat things for those on listening because no, they don't have very. Um, but but the the ma that we have in the context of Pesach, maha voda zos lachem, is clearly a question. Clearly. So. I'm not sure, right? Meaning, clearly, if, if they're modeling it after the psukim, then the, the ma over there is clearly a, a question mark. But that's, a, that's an interesting point. Yeah. So I want to make one point about the end of this section and then one point about the beginning. I'm going to start at the end, and that is the, the sequencing over here in Rabban Gamliel's section. And then next week, we're going to go actual section by section and, and learn the sections themselves. Today, I want to give you the bird's eye view. Uh, next week, we could, we'll, we'll, we'll go through the actual text. Um, and, okay. But... What's funny about Raman Gamliel is the final section, the visualization section. What's odd about his structuring? He says, Pesach, Matzah, Umarar, right? This is the Korban Pesach that we eat, right? We eat the Korban Pesach because on the night of Pesach, we, we ate the Korban Pesach. And we eat the Matzah, why? Because they left Egypt and the bread did not have time to bake. Great. This is the Mara we ate because we were enslaved. What's, what's strange about his sequencing, his order? Because we, were sl- because we had a bitter, bitter time in Egypt, right? So maybe the Mara should come first. Mara, presumably. Right, excellent, right? Mara should come first, right? Pesach comes before matzah because they ate the Korban Pesach at that night. And the matzah, at least in this telling, is about the matzah they ate as they left Egypt. Fine. But, it, but Mara is at the end? Mara should really be in the beginning. It should be Mara, Pesach, matzah, as opposed to Pesach, matzah, Marar. We say it every year. We're so used to it, and it has a good ring to it. And when I say Marar Pesach Matzah, it sounds funny, but that would actually make much more sense. No, it doesn't. It sounds very sensible. Okay. The korban. When they say Pesach, they mean the korban, right? Mm-hmm. And it says in connection with the korban, Al Matzot Marim Umraring Yochlus. You start with the korban and then follow it with okay. the side dishes, Matzah and Marar. Okay. That's, that's very fair. That's very fair. Uh, that could be. That could be. I think in the way Rabbi Liel is saying the story, it sounds like he's, try, he's trying to share over the story, right? Rabbi Liel is much more about the storytelling, but, but that's fair, and that's probably, that, that, that certainly is a valid approach that it follows the, the sequencing of the verses. Excellent. Alternatively, I heard of once a beautiful idea from Rabbi uh, Avraham Tversky, right, Dr. Tversky. Um, he suggests the following idea, and that is that, you know, what, when, we, when we focus on the Mara, what are we doing? We're focusing on the challenges that, that we experienced in Mitzrayim. Right? And what, it, what, what is our, throughout our, uh, throughout the Torah, what does it tell us about our experience in Mitzrayim? Right? Remember it, remember, we remember, there's two, there's almost two directions. One is remember what God said to us, and then everywhere else it talks about us being in Egypt. What is the goal of us being in Egypt? What does it say? You remember you were slaves, so that? Sorry? To make us into a nation. But throughout, but there's also one particular message which is given over and over again, and that is that there are, and which ties into that, and that is that remember that you were slaves and therefore be kind to the stranger, to the, to the impoverished, etc., etc. There is a, a lesson to be learned from those difficulties. There is something we're supposed to be taking for ourselves, which, by the way, I think is part and parcel with becoming a nation because that is a unique feature of, of what our nation, na- nationhood is, represents. But there's this idea that we're supposed to be learning from those difficult experiences. Suggested by Tversky, you know, when we're going through a very difficult situation, you know, all we see is what's in front of us. If we're lucky, we don't see that far, right? When we're going through stress, you know, if you could visualize how your brain is, you know, it's, it's usually everything feels constricted, right? You feel very constricted. It's uh, Mitzar, right? Mitzrayim from the word straits, right? When we are in a difficult situation, we feel constricted. We can't, we don't, right? When you feel, when you're in a good mood, you ever wake up and you feel like humming or whatever, then you feel expansive, right? And you see everything around you, right? All of a sudden, things around you make sense. You know, by the way, you know, uh, what, I, I, I was at a wedding last night, right? What do we do at the end of a chuppah? What, what do we always do? We sing imeshkachich, right? It's the happiest time of the year, the happiest time of their lives. And what we do, uh, it's like, you know, you want to be cynical. You say, like, as Jews are, are, are a bunch of morbid people. And at the end of a wedding, we want to remind ourselves, oh, you're being too happy. Hey, don't be too happy. Remember, there's a base of image that's destroyed. What's going on? It's so, that's pathetic. You know, why, why we do this? But the truth is, the explanation behind it is that, no, it's because we're so expansive at that moment, because the bride and groom are feeling such great joy, they're able to actually see everything. 
And when we're in a state of joy, right, when I'm in a bad mood, I, I can't tell if you're in a bad mood. I'm so focused on myself, right? But if I'm in a good place, then when I see you, oh, you know, you're not interacting the same way. I'm much more attuned to the pain and what's broken in the world. I'm able to look at some of those difficult circumstances and actually, or people in distress and learn from them, help them and help my, and learn from my own difficult circumstances and not just complain and not just feel bitter, but actually grow from them. And so suggest Ray Tversky, the goal of Seder Night is not just to say the story and, oh, there is this terrible injustice and we were not doing well. No, the goal is to grow from the situations. The goal is not finger pointing and saying, oh, those terrible Egyptians, we want our money back or whatever. The goal is to say, hey, Marar, right? And we want to grow from Marar. But the only way we could really grow from our Marar situations very often is after we've been able to, when we're in a better place. We've experienced the Pesach. We've experienced the Matzah. Ah, we're a little more comfortable. Now we could engage in the Marar. Now we could say, oh, Mara Zusha, we had a bitter life. What can I learn from that? How could I be a more kind person to others? What, what, what personal lessons can I learn? What failings did I have when I was going through that stressful situation? And in what way did I fall short? In what way can I grow? We can only properly analyze that question after we've left Mitzrayim, after we've experienced a little bit of freedom, after we've had that sense of expansiveness, only then could we go back and reflect and properly appreciate the Mara. And that's why it is Pesach, Matzamar, not the historical sequence, but the growth sequence. For us to grow properly, we need to reflect on those difficult times when we're in a good place, and then we could grow from them. Okay, that's point number one about the end. Let's go all the way back to the beginning to a passage, which I omitted every time we reviewed this passage. That's on page 24 or page 25. Give you a second, turn to those pages. Okay, on page 24, 25, we say, Halach Ma'anya. This is the bread of... What do they say? The bread of affliction. That our forefathers ate in Egypt. Now it's interesting. Did the Jews eat matzah as a bread of affliction? Not really. They ate matzah on the night that they left Mitzrayim and then the days that followed as they were leaving. It's funny that we call matzah the bread of affliction. I did see something very interesting from Navudraham, one of the medieval commentators, and he quotes from a, from a contemporary of his who was once enslaved, was once taken as a captive in the Egyptian region, not exactly in Egypt, but in that region. And he says, you know what they did to how they fed their slaves? You know what they fed their slaves? You guessed it. Matzah. Why? As we all know, it takes a while to digest and actually sticks with you a lot. It's a very economical type of food to eat because it sticks with you. Okay. We could talk about Ashkenazi stomachs another time. But the point is that that matzah takes a while to digest due to its density. And therefore, it's actually actually the food that was served for slaves. And he theorizes that maybe although we eat matzah to remind ourselves of the freedom, but in truth, perhaps they were actually eating matzah as a bread of affliction. Perhaps that was the food that was fed to the Jewish people while they were in Egypt. It's a fascinating theory. Okay, fine. But the point is, what, okay, that, that line makes sense. Then what do we say? All those who are hungry, let them come and eat. All those who are in need, come and make Pesach. This year we are here. Next year we are in Israel. This year uh, we are slaves. Next year we are free. Okay. Very famous passage, but also a very bizarre passage. Okay, so we start saying, this is the matzah, I get that. And then we say, whoever's hungry, come and eat. Let me ask you a question. You're sitting at your Seder table. There's a certain amount of seats that are set. And you say, whoever's hungry, come and eat. What kind of invitation is that? Right? Really? Whoever's hungry, come and eat? No one's there. Well, you're talking to your family. You're talking to your friends. You're talking to your guests. You're, what's going on? Whoever's hungry, come and eat. It's a joke. It's a joke. Right? That's number, one, number two, I guess. Number three is that why are we all of a sudden saying now we're slaves, next year we'll be free? Why is that here? You know, at the end of the Seder, we say, okay, we have a hope for the future. Why are we saying that specifically over here? And the last question is, why is this passage in? It's in a different language. It's in Aramaic, right? This passage should be in Hebrew. The whole Haggadah is in Hebrew. This passage is in Aramaic. So the early commentators share the following historical tidbit, which I think is mind-blowing and fascinating. They tell us that historically, historically about a thousand years ago or so, it was the common practice as they would come to their seders, as they would come to their own homes, before they would start, they would open their doors and go outside into the open alleyways. And they'd say, if anyone is hungry, if anyone needs a seder, come and join us. And the people who didn't have a place to go would be waiting in the streets and they would come to their homes for the seder. This wasn't a joke. This was a legitimate, real, genuine invitation to people who were really in need. They would open the door and welcome them in and tell them, come, if you need to eat. Actually, it's such a beautiful terminology. It says, if you're hungry, come and eat. If you need, come and do Pesach. Why that double terminology? The commentators point out because, you know, 
even if you have enough food to eat, to make Pesach is much more expensive. So you say, okay, if you're hungry, come and eat. But even if you have enough to eat, but you need more because, you know, matzah is expensive, eggs are, everything's expensive, right? The point is to make Pesach is a fortune. You make a lot, you know? So if you need, come and make Pesach. Basically, it was, an, it was a genuine, real imitation that was done in, in, the, in, in the medieval world to invite people to come join them at the Seder. And that's why they suggest, we then say, now we're here, now we're all slaves. Why are they saying now we're slaves? Why is that over here? It's, why anyone think, think why, why would we say that over here? We're not in Yerushalayim, but specifically connects to this section because we're trying to make our guests, those who are coming off the streets, feel a little better, right? We're saying, we're all, yeah, yeah, you don't have a meal, but I'm also lacking. We're all slaves. We're all, none of of us are have it all. None of us are really free. All of us are struggling in one way or another. And therefore, we specifically invoke that over here, even though it's not really relevant to the rest of the section, because we're trying to make our guests feel as comfortable as possible. And that's why, by the way, this section is in Aramaic, because it was instituted later on, and it was meant, Aramaic was the common language that was spoke back then. People in Babylon didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. And therefore, right, so, so this passage over here is such a beautiful, majestic way to begin the Seder. It's, we don't do this nowadays. Uh, you should, I don't know, you don't open the door and yell out to your streets, you know, uh, whoever's hungry. But it's telling us, it's reminding us, and we're learning this, you know, two and a half, you know, two weeks plus before Pesach. It's reminding us that in ancient times, the Seder would not begin before people would open their door and truly invite people in. And they would invite them in the most sensitive way. It was, oh, you're needy? Great, come and eat. No, we're all, we're, we all need each other. And this is the truth, right? We're all, we all, we're, 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 we're all slaves. We're all in some ways dependent on other people. You in this way, I in this way. We're all interdependent. And therefore, it was a beautiful way of beginning the Seder of inviting other people in. And so I would just suggest, you know, we don't have this uh, practically nowadays because, you know, we still say it. We remind ourselves. We don't open our door. Elijah, yeah, we'll get to that later, right? But, but, but at this point, you know, we could do that today. We could do that tomorrow. We could make those invitations. You know, we don't have, we don't have the ability to really actualize this in a practical sense on the night of the Seder. Uh, but that doesn't preclude us from picking up the phone and saying, hey, uh, you know, call Dietrich. Do you need some help? You know, do you want to come and join me? Yes, if you have Come and you know, say it in English. Say it nicely. But the point is that, it, you know, we're, we're taught that the way we begin the Seder is by inviting, engaging, welcoming people into our Seder. That's how we begin this section. We can't get started until we have other people there, which is such an important idea to think about, not just uh, in the night of the Seder, but as we prepare for Seder night to make sure that, you know, it's a night of sharing, it's a night of welcoming, it's a night of community. Okay, so just quickly to summarize what we spoke about, uh, we spoke about two possible structures of the Haggadah. One is that it follows the verse of you should tell your child, and that's chart number two. The other one is uh, following the sequence of question, answer, praise, uh, both physical redemption, spiritual redemption, textual study, uh, visualization. We spoke about the, stu- the, the meal of Rabbi Akiva, why in B'nai Brak, either because it's the model of passing on to the children or because they were themselves oppressed, they themselves were on the run, and reminding ourselves of that experience. We spoke about the, the, the verses that are used for Tzay Ulamad. The reason we pick those verses is because those people who said those verses were people who didn't experience the Exodus, and yet they're speaking as if they did. And they themselves are connecting their story to the generations before them. We're trying to do the same, right? Uh, we spoke about we can only appreciate our difficulties and learn from them when we're in a good place after the fact. And we spoke about the importance of inviting people and making sure people are part of our Seder. Next week, God willing, we will focus on the text itself. I hope this gave you a good bird's eye view. And next week, we'll zoom in a little bit. I will see you then. Thank you.